0: DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Matthew Bunsen, who's a senior fellow of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. His books include The Encyclopedia of Catholic History, The Encyclopedia of Saints, and The Angelic Doctor, The Life and World of St. Thomas Aquinas. Dr. Bunsen has authored St. Damien of Molokai, Apostle of the Exile. He also serves as the editor of the Catholic Answer magazine. He appears regularly as a guest on Relevant Radio and Catholic Answers Live and hosts the radio program Faith Works for Redeemer Radio. With Dr. Matthew Bunsen, we begin a very special edition of Inside the Pages, looking at the life, the times, and the works of St. Hildegard von Bingen and St. John of Avalon. Dr. Bunsen, thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, a pleasure, as always, to be with you.
0: It's a delight to be able to take on this subject. How often is it that saints are declared doctors of the Church?
1: Well, not very often in the entire 2,000-year history of the Church. uh, The Church has officially declared, uh, up until now, uh, only 33 doctors, uh, with the uh, declaration by the Holy Father of... uh, Hildegard of Bingen and St. John of Avila, uh, we're now up to uh, 34 and 35. So, as you can imagine, uh, this is a a very rare occasion. Uh, One of the last times that it happened was in 1997, uh, when Pope John Paul II uh, declared uh, Therese of Lisieux a doctor of the Church.
0: Why does the Church feel that this particular uh, declarations need to occur now?
1: Well, it's uh, interesting when you look at uh, the, the events that are sort of coalescing uh, in October of 2012. We have a series of uh, very significant anniversaries. We start with the 50th anniversary of the opening of the Second Vatican Council uh, by Pope Blessed uh, John the XXIII. Uh, we have the 20th anniversary of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, We have, as well, uh, the coming together of the Synod of Bishops for the new evangelization. And then we have the declaration of the start of the year of faith for the Church. So these are some pretty big events uh, that uh, Pope Benedict XVI is leading. And he talked specifically about uh, these two new doctors back in May of, of this year. And he said that both of them are great witnesses of the faith, Lived in very different historical periods and came from very different cultural backgrounds. That's certainly something we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. He points out, of course, that the sanctity of life and the depth of their teaching makes them perpetually present to us. And he also then ties them, he said, especially in light of the project of the new evangelization, uh, to which he said the assembly of the Synod of Bishops will be dedicated, on, as he points out, the vigil of the year of faith. So both of them, Hildegard and John of Avila, are saintly, they're doctors, but they're also remarkably relevant uh, to what he's trying to accomplish uh, with the Synod on the New Evangelization and also with the Year of Faith.
0: For many of us, when we think of the New Evangelization, St. Hildegard doesn't necessarily pop into our minds and hearts.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Here is uh, an abbess. Uh, who lived in the 12th century, uh, known as the Sybil of the Rhine. Yeah, at, at first glance, you would think, well, what does she actually have to do with the year of faith, of the new evangelization, how, did, how exactly does this work? Mm-hmm. And yet, um, we have in Benedict, Pope Benedict XVI's own writings, uh, he has held her up repeatedly over the last few years uh, as a model for reform and renewal in the Church. Uh, especially in light of the sex abuse crisis that, of course, has been uh, such a major problem for uh, Catholicism in the last decade. Mm-hmm. He actually said of Hildegard that her mystical visions uh, resemble those of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, he said that she expressed herself in the, the cultural and religious categories or imagery of her age, but she, and, and she interpreted sacred scripture in the light of God, uh, but she applied them to various circumstances of life. And uh, her imagery, then, uh, is is very pertinent to what we're trying to do today, that she, as Old Testament prophets did, called for this renewal of the self, a reform uh, within the Church, a renewal of the Church. This is exactly what Pope Benedict XVI has called for.
0: It's an incredible life that she did lead, but many of us are really unaware of why this woman who lived, gosh, has over 900 years ago, Mm -hmm. why the Holy Father would be looking to her as an example.
1: Well, we have to remember um, that Sybil of the Rhine, which Mm -hmm. is what her nickname was, that Hildegard of Bingen was literally one of the most remarkable women of the Middle Ages. And in the last decades, uh, two things have happened. The first is that there has been a very profound appreciation of her in the Church. The other, uh, she has sort of been seized upon, or I don't think I can go too far in saying that in a way, her legacy has been hijacked Mm -hmm. by a lot of the New Age crowd, by a lot of the sort of militant feminist crowd uh, because of the sheer scope and diversity of her achievements and her interests. She was, in her lifetime, an anchoress. She was a nun. She was an abbess. She founded two different religious houses. She was a writer, a theologian, a preacher, a poet, a, a composer of Latin chant. She authored one of the very first of the morality plays of the Middle Ages. She was a a healer, nigh unto being a physician. Mm -hmm. She called for church reform. She was respected by kings and queens and popes and princes all over Christendom. Uh, She had great interest in science and botany, uh, and she even created an artificial language with its own alphabet.
0: Yeah, but did she do anything else? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I say that tongue-in-cheek, of course.
1: Well, her her poetry, her songs, um, her prophecies, Mm. um, what she called the the shadow of the living light, for example, um, Mm. all of these things were incredibly diverse and displayed immense talent in so many different ways. So it's not surprising Appreciate her more and more, and as Benedict holds her up as a model for reform, there are those uh, who don't like the church very much who have also uh, found her, discovered her, and are trying to use her writings to interpret them in such a way that she was somehow a, a radical feminist in her own era, that she was an advocate for the ordination of women, for mm. example, that uh, she was some sort of a uh and, and basically they have tried to take her completely out of the context of the Church, mm-hmm. which would be horrifying to Hildegard, because she was so profoundly of the Church, and loved the Church, and spoke so powerfully of the reform of the Church, at a time uh, in her century when, in fact, the Church was in need of reform. And... She was also, if we understand her in her true work, in her true life, a demonstration that the Church does not hate women, which of course is one of those accusations that we hear quite a bit today, especially Mm -hmm. in light of uh, things like the HHS mandate and uh, the Church's position on abortion and contraception. She loved the Church, and the Church loved her. I mean, this is somebody who is deeply respected, by, as I said, by by popes and bishops all across the Church uh, in Europe. Uh, So far from demeaning her, far from keeping her oppressed, uh, this is somebody who rose to immense influence in the Church and whose holiness and genius... Uh, were recognized by her contemporaries and, and honored. Mm.
0: For many people, they m- may want to explore the writings of Hildegard and they encounter the Scivia and those incredible w- visions, revelations, how would you categorize them, Matthew?
1: Yeah, um, well, her her major works, the this the, the Liber Vitae Meritorum, or the Books of the Merits of Life, and it was called the uh, Liber Divinorum Operum, or the Books of the Divine Works. All of them bring together various visionary experiences uh, that, I wouldn't say that they're unprecedented in Church history, but they were certainly remarkable in Church history. They're not apparitions or dreams, but they're, they're sights perceived, um, as she described it as shadows of the living light, that uh, really were very powerfully illuminating her soul. Uh, she recorded some of these. Some of them were dictated. Others were sketched. Um, one of the, the great authorities on her, uh, an author named the name of Barbara Newman, um, has helped, I think, to increase our understanding of that. Um, her, the, the books themselves consist of visions, followed then by sort of her explanation or her exegesis of what she had seen. Mm -hmm. And um, I think they really, again, it's the the fiery image that she used of flame, of uh, the sun, the moon, the stars. Um, Really coming down to the the essence of it is caritas, or love. And using this imagery as a way of explaining uh, some of the deeper theological points that she was making. Uh, for example, the Lamb of God, of um, really reminding us of the power of God uh, and the essence of God. So in that sense, I think her her visions, while very difficult uh, to comprehend because of the complexity of the imagery, I think really do keep coming back to caritas, to love, to the essence of, of God.
0: I've tried to explain to, to groups that I've had the opportunity to speak with about this the importance of Hildegard coming forward when I've, I've compared her uh, with other women doctors of the church who I greatly love and admire. I, Therese, of course. But when you look at Therese, I mean, if you were to measure it, maybe they're half inch to an inch worth of work. I'm just giving you to kind of scale it for folks. Yeah. Then you have Catherine of Siena, maybe about three or four inches. Um, Teresa of Avila, maybe about six inches, seven inches. Then there's Hildegard. You might as well, three feet, four feet. Right. I mean, just the amount of material that she was able to pass on to, well now, antiquity.
1: Yeah, I- exactly. And uh, that mystical content that she has is is very profound and very theological. You know, uh, Pope Benedict XVI has been especially taken with her uh, over the last few years, and has actually devoted entire general audiences to her life and writings.
0: Those two audiences that occurred in late August of 2010, where he, and that was to kick off a whole contemplation, a whole series of Wednesday audiences on holy women, right? Who, like Hildegard, and many of them had deep, deep contemplative, what would be categorized as mystical experiences, but like Hildegard, they remained very obedient to the church.
1: Precisely, yeah. Uh, and and one of the things that Benedict develops, especially as he talks about Hildegard is the, what he sees as the, the theme of the marriage between God and humanity that is brought about in the Incarnation. Uh, he uses, again, uh, some of her own imagery, that um, as he describes it, on the tree of the cross, there takes place the nuptials of the Son of God with the Church, his bride, filled with grace and the ability to give new children to God in the love of the Holy Spirit. Benedict um, really does hold up uh, St. Hildegard, as this great model for many aspects of the mystical life, Uh, but also, again, that authentic reform, and and we always have to stress that Mm -hmm. authentic reform in the Church, that uh, her powerful imagery didn't serve to humiliate the Church uh, or to um, denigrate or to try to recreate the Church in some sort of her own image, but rather uh, to bring about a reform of the institutional Church, and also, it is often forgotten, to criticize and refute uh, what was going on at the time of secular interference in the life of the Church. Uh, That happened on a very regular basis in in her age. And Benedict especially likes to go back to her description of the Church as a a beautiful but disheveled woman, Mm. uh, (laughs) bewailing... Uh, Her abuse. Mm. Uh, He's quoted, in fact, uh, the image that Hildegard has is that they have spattered my face with dust and torn my robe, darkened my mantle, and blackened my shoes with mud. Mm. And this is very consistent uh, with Benedict's own um, way of calling for the church to that reform to that renewal, especially in the light of um, the sex abuse crisis.
0: There's so much to glean from her her life, her influence. I can't imagine that over the next several decades, there won't be many scholars who will be able to receive their doctoral dissertations just and trying to break open even just slivers of Hildegard's work.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And one of the great things about this, as much as her being named a doctor of the Church, is that it encourages all of us, uh, who have been fans of hers for a long time, to deepen our own understanding of of her life and her writings, but also to help the Church to bring her back to who she was authentically, who Mm -hmm. she really was, not uh, the image of this uh, medieval militant feminist uh, that some people have tried to project, uh, not as a New Age figure, uh, who is some sort of a quasi-pantheist, which (laughs) I've actually seen. Um, Hildegard Mm -hmm. was a saint, she was a profound mystic, a profound theologian, and as you pointed out, this is probably the most significant part, an obedient and loving daughter of the Church. Mm Mm-hmm. And in that sense, um, we all can celebrate the fact that she's been appointed and declared a doctor of the church um, because we can begin to see her as she truly was uh, and as she really needs to be celebrated and honored.
0: Yeah, I fell in love with her music first. That's the first time I've heard is some of the, the uh, opportunities to be able to hear her glorious Chance that she brought uh, to her community and have been reproduced since then. When he started doing the audiences of back in, in that time in 2010, it was like we all could come out of hiding. Right. <laughs> all the Hildegard lovers. <laughs> because just as you said, even today people are still so timid about going near her because of that co-opting that right. was done of her.
1: Yeah, exactly, and uh, I, I talk to people all the time and I ask, "Well, is she really Catholic?" I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's. I mean,
0: does he know it, what she's he's doing? More like a new
1: age person, right? I
0: mean, right.
1: Yeah, and and I would encourage uh, your listeners to. Uh, you can find them readily. Um, a number of her compositions have been uh, fully developed and then performed uh, by a number of these great revival medieval groups.
0: Oh, Anonymous 4.
1: Yes, exactly. And and just take some time and listen to some of that music because much of it is exquisite.
0: Mm, It is. It just, it it elevates your heart and your soul. And I think that what a glorious thing that our Holy Father has done in bringing to us the Sybil of the Rhine. Yeah. But another one who's being lifted up is a man that, again, many but we, we know Avila, we know Teresa, and we know John, John of the Cross, but many of us have never been aware of John of Avila.
1: No, exactly. Um, I confess that uh, when the news first uh, came out, and this would have been, I think, in 2011, mm-hmm. uh, that John of Avila was uh, a candidate uh, to become a doctor of the church. In fact, I think it was uh, during one of Benedict's trips to Spain. Uh, He made this declaration. Um, A lot of people first were scratching their heads as to who John of Avila was. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think there was, I wouldn't say there's disappointment, but there was a kind of assumption that people have had for a while that, well, John Paul II would be declared as doctor of the Church quickly, or John Henry Newman, because remember there was some Mm -hmm. discussion of that uh, during the Holy Father's trip to England in 2010. So we have this name that was sort of put out, and everyone at first thought he was talking about John of the Cross, mm-hmm. and because John of Avila, and there's that, that whole connection, uh, forgetting, of course, that the John of the Cross was already declared a doctor of the Church in 1926. Right. So um, what is so interesting about John of Avila, and this is somebody who lived in 16th century Spain, consider that he was a contemporary of... The future saints, Francis Borgia, Luis of Granada, John of God, and then Teresa of Avila. Wow. He was, in his era, a trusted advisor to Teresa. He helped organize the University of Granada. He was an associate of the recently established Jesuits, uh, who worked very hard to uh, establish and then grow the order in Spain, uh, and was actually planning on becoming one himself. Uh, before he died. Mm -hmm. So here was a figure who was known, respected, revered, and was a trusted advisor to some of the greatest saints of the 16th century, some of the greatest leaders of the Catholic reform in the 16th century. And one of the participants in that incredible explosion of theology of renewal and reform in Spain uh, in the 16th century.
0: Just as a reminder again, the Reformation is occurring. Right. And there's this great uh, just a tearing and a sundering apart, and here we have in beautiful Spain, España, there's just this unbelievable growth of, more than even the intellect, that, that interior uh, reform, that, that, that wonderful exploration of the heart so that the two become synthesized.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's it. And these very interesting threads of reform that had been around for some time, you know, one of the, the great myths about the, the, the Protestant Reformation and certainly the Catholic reform. I, I always as you and I have talked a number of times over the years, I'm not a big fan of like using the phrase "a counter-reformation," right because it, it implies that there is some sort of a response, a belated response. When, in fact, if, if we study this topic carefully, we can see that the, the Catholic reform or the Catholic Reformation was underway long before Luther took and a, a nailed the, the 95 Theses, uh, to the doors of the church in Wittenberg mm-hmm. in 1517, renewal was already underway. And we can see a lot of that already underway in so many different fashions across the church. But once that reform and that renewal gained immense power and strength, um, it just was an unstoppable force in the lands that remained Catholic um, in the wake of the the, the Protestant Reformation. And Spain certainly has to rank up as one of the the great places for this, as we saw with uh, 16th century Italy. And John of Avila was one of those forgotten heroes in that process. Uh, He was somebody born to a Jewish family. Uh, He he studied law, uh, but was drawn to the religious life. And long before he studied uh, theology, uh, in fact, studied under one of the greatest of the Dominicans, uh, by the name of Domingo or Dominic Soto, um, he practiced a life of prayer and austerity. So he was preparing himself for what was coming and was actually hoping to do missionary work in Mexico. Mm -hmm. But uh, the Archbishop of uh, Sevilla asked him to stay in Spain as part of that increasing enterprise of reform and renewal uh, in Spain, and proved himself to be a magnificent preacher from around 1529, and began attracting these enormous crowds with his uh, uh, sermons all across Andalusia, and so much so uh, that he was investigated by the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, for fears that he might have been teaching excessive rigorism, that uh, he was uh, too sharp in his denunciations of wealth. Um, But, of course, he was uh, acquitted and fully exonerated in 1535 and uh, returned to his missions, uh, his preaching, uh, his homilies in Andalusia, and became known as the Apostle of Andalusia.
0: I think it's so exciting having the opportunity to get to know not only John of Avila, but also Hildegard in the life of the church. I mean, there has been said that there are many other saints who, yeah, we would have thought, I mean, it might be surprising for some to realize that St. Ignatius of Loyola is not a doctor of the church. Right. But uh, for right now, we've been given to know these two, and if you don't know them, it really it would be beneficial, I would think, to get to know them.
1: And and the coming weeks I think will provide us with uh, many opportunities. Uh, I'm looking forward especially to reading uh, Pope Benedict's homily, and I know you'll be there for the the actual ceremony for the Declaration mm-hmm. uh, of what Pope Benedict has to say in greater detail, because the Declaration, you know, as you and I have discussed, uh, we're, we're together that show on all of the doctors. Mm -hmm. So we have two more shows to do. Uh, Yay! The Declaration of a Doctor of the Church uh, requires certain requirements, three conditions, Uh, Mm -hmm. their eminent learning, their manifest sanctity, and then a formal declaration by the Church. So there will be this document uh, from the Holy Father uh, with the Declaration, and I'm very eager to read his reflections on their writings, their preaching, the eminence of their learning, the sanctity of their lives, and his particular take on what it is about these two that warrant this formal public declaration by the Church that they are doctors and that they made important and lasting contributions to the faith and should be recognized for their great merits. That, it's going to be a, a, something very, very important for all of us to read.
0: I can't wait. I just think this is just thrilling. This is a Holy Father who has said, and I think you've said it, he does theology on his knees. He's such a prayerful, contemplative, brilliant scholar. And for him to say, the the church, this is a gift to you. Dive in there and learn from this. Why we would be timid in, in responding to that, well, I don't know why.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, for all of us, this is a, a great chance not just to honor these two, uh, but to look in a new way uh, at all of the doctrines of the Church, uh, quite literally from you know Albertus Magnus Albert the Great all the way to Thomas Aquinas.
0: Mm, how wonderful. Dr. Matthew Bunsen, thank you so much for joining us, especially on this particular reflection on St. Hildegard and St. John of Avila.
1: Oh, it's a great privilege, as always. Uh, Anytime, Chris.
0: With Dr. Matthew Bunsen, we've looked at the new doctors of the church, St. Hildegard von Bingen and St. John of Avila. A great majority of Dr. Bunsen's work can be found at osv.com, the website for his publisher, Our Sunday Visitor. Be sure to check out the magazine he edits, The Catholic Answer, also published by Our Sunday Visitor. To hear this discussion, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.